Welcome, one and all, to the Music Forum, the place where we educate, inform, and enlighten you on all things music. We're dedicated to making a music lover out of you. I'm your host, Nicholas O'Neill. Today, I have the immense privilege of welcoming musician, multi-instrumentalist, producer, and video game composer Sean Lee to the show. He has released a staggering volume of music under his own name, as well as Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra. He's collaborated on projects with A.M., Bebe, and Clutchy Hopkins, as well as numerous others from Lana Del Rey to Amy Winehouse to the Dust Brothers. He scored Rockstar Games' 2006 cult classic, Bully, uh, also known as Canis Canem Edit in PAL Regions, which won GameSpot's award for Best Original Music. I could honestly go on about all of Sean Lee's accomplishments for hours, but I would much prefer to hear it from the man himself. Mr. Lee, how are you doing today? Greetings from London. I'm okay, man. It's a chilly April day here in the capital, but uh, other than that, yeah. All right, man. Take, Just takes got a, back from the dog walk. <laughs> takes a little bit to get out of the, the winter time, I guess, over there, right? Well, you know what? It was like March was, March, you know, spring had sprung, and we were like getting all like, oh man, amazing. And then, uh, and then now April's kind of come in and got cold again. It's, it snowed a couple of times already in April. Wow. So it's kind of like, yeah, spring's here. No, it's not. <laughs> kind of so, tricked you yeah. for a second. Yeah, definitely. So we're, we're a bit pissed off about that. But, you know, hopefully another week in the weather will turn the other direction finally. Yeah. All right. So let's get down to it, right? Uh, how did yeah. you get started playing, recording, and performing music? Well, that is a very big question, but I'll try to come up with a very concise answer if that is impossible. But um, I think I always loved music uh, and listening to records and listening to the radio always transported me to um, – kind of a, a magical world and uh when i was about i think when i was about 10 or around that age i started to play guitar i had a neighbor who was older than me he was probably about five or six years older and at that age that's quite a lot older if you know what i mean um you know he had facial hair and he was in high school you know what i mean <laughs> and he was a really good bass player and um he kind of took me under his wing and taught me some chords on the guitar. And, you know, he also played me cool records as well. You know, he would play me things like, uh, you know, I mean, like all the classic rock, of course, I was hearing. But he, like, turned me on to things like, um, I can remember, like, sort of hearing, like, what you would call jazz fusion now for the first time from him. I remember him playing me the first Stanley Clark album. And I remember hearing Flora Perim, you know, the album she did with George Duke. And, and this was like, uh, you know, and I, I saw Maha Vision Orchestra on the Midnight Special as well. And, and so this was like, whoa, this is like a whole other, you know, schism of music beyond the classic sort of rock and soul and country music that I was hearing on the radio, which was, you know, I mean, you know, it was all you could ever wanted, really. But um, so he was very influential getting me started in music. And then I um, I, uh, I just listened to a lot of records and, and played along to records and began messing around with tape recorders. 
which again was like a really like it was like a magic door you know a tape recorder you could think of something and and record it and then listen back to it and then you know i might play something and then play over the top of it and i was like oh my god this is this is amazing <laughs> and so it kind of built from there you know and then when i was 16 i became a professional musician and i started playing um drums in in bars and clubs and and i was listening and and to and playing all kinds of music you know and so i think my musical palette was always very diverse and eclectic and i i guess i i really believed in um having big ears and learning um about stuff but i i think for me learning was very much about it it was it was very oral experience it was a about listening to you know records and listening to the radio and um it was about absorbing stuff it was more about that and actually playing than it was about practicing i was never somebody that would could lock myself in a room for hours practicing scales or yeah. rudiments you know the the, the the mechanics of music don't really in, interest me it's more about the the sound and the feel and the atmosphere and the record making process and the, the the emotion and all those kind of things. The more expressionistic side of it is what I'm into and, and rather than the technical side. So I see. Um, you know, so I did all of that, you know, and then eventually started playing, you know, in bands. Um, I was just playing with lots of different people and learning and I started recording my own songs in the early 80s, probably, I think 1982. And that, again, was like a big, you know, turning point for me because... Is that, is that really, uh, really quick, That's is that when you moved to L.A.? No, I was still in Wichita. Oh, okay. Um, where I grew up. And I think when I started to record my own songs, I sort of realized that that's was kind of the point of what I wanted to do musically because everything that I was doing was a part of a puzzle and the, and the puzzle was a song, you know, it was a track. So it, everything would just, everything played a role in, you know, it was all about, you know, putting something together, which made an end result. And so, it, it, so everything had a purpose and it was uh, constructed to, to, um, support the song and all that kind of stuff and so that really changed where my head was at i i was never as i said before was never one that was really into being flashy on instruments so but that really focused me when i started to write and record songs it really focused that playing was there to serve the song and and i was i became obsessed with you know just putting together stuff that worked well and sounded cool and so I guess that was the producer in me. I wanted to make stuff that sounded good and, and sounded cool and, and combine the different things that I liked. And I liked a lot of different things. So I was always trying to take those influences and put it into, into something which felt authentic, you know, to me at that time. And obviously that's a, a fluid uh, thing, but... Um, basically I, you know, I played, uh, in, in, in a band for five years where I had a, uh, through the eighties and I really honed my playing then 
Um, and it was just a cover band. But I, uh, but I was writing and recording my own songs, and I wanted to move to L.A. So in 88, I sort of left Wichita behind and I moved out there and started over. And again, it was a similar process. It was about uh, writing and recording demos, meeting people, uh, playing in lots of different bands. I always, I, I, and I still do uh, now, I, I always, you know, believe, uh, my belief was that uh, it was great to have fingers and pies. So it's like doing lots of different things, uh, you know, at the same time. And, and you know, I have diverse interests, so that suits me. But, you know, I think the school of thought for a long time was that, you know, you have to focus on one thing and become the best at it. And that sort of, that's the way you get good. That's the way you succeed. I always felt like jack of all trade, master of none. You know, it's just what I like to do. I like the idea of doing different things and it keeps things fresh and it keeps me learning. And, um, and you just got all this great cross-pollinization between different styles and different musicians and be, being in a different role in, in a particular scenario. And so it all comes back, you know, one way or another into what you're doing. And so it, it, it just, um, it just makes all, you know, it makes the tapestry, tapestry richer in the end. So, you know, that's what I did. And, and eventually I, um, you know, I started to meet people. That's when I met the, the Dust Brothers was a big thing. You mentioned them earlier. Um, a, a friend uh, of mine who was a trumpet player named Fernando Pullum. Hmm. Um, I was a big fan of the Dust Brothers and I loved um, Delicious Vinyl and Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys and, and they were like my, you know, favorite producers at the time, and I just loved what they did. And they I also actually, did uh, for for those listening. They also did uh, Beck's Odelay, and they did uh, right. the Fight Club score, which is incredible. That's true. And and I had actually hung out in the studio a couple of times. I remember going to the record plant in L.A., and they were doing some remix, the Dust Brothers, and um, and I, I knew somebody that knew them and. They were like, hey, you want to go to the studio and hang out? And the Dust Brothers are working on a, you know, I, I forget the artist they were remixing, but I was like, yeah, yeah, you know. And so I went in there and watched them. And I remember, I didn't know what they looked like. And I remember, you know, their productions were really funky. And I, I when I saw them, I was like, oh, my God, these are the two whitest guys I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, these guys, are like, they're like, they're like, they're, they were so nerdy, man. And I was like, how can they do such funky music? You know, it just, it, it just blew my head off. And so uh, when I was, one day I was, I was talking to Fernando and Fernando like knew the Dust Brothers and he'd, he'd worked with them. And he said, he, he said, man, I need to hook you up with the Dust Brothers, man. You know, they love, they love what you do, you know? And so he just called the Dust Brothers on the phone. He's like that minute. Wow. He called him up. He, I don't know if it was Mike or John that answered the phone, but he was just like, "Yeah, I'm here with my boy Sean Lee, and you guys should really, you guys should work with him, man. You know, you know, he's dope, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and and so and so then I, you know, they were like, "Yeah, what are you doing on Tuesday?" And so I, I went over to their house, and it was really trippy, you know. I was like, all of a sudden, I'm in the Dust Brothers' house, and, um, and so I used to go over and hang out with them, and listen to records and i mean they had an insane 
you know, record collection. And, and I would, I would just go through their, their vinyl and look at stuff. And I started making like mixtapes and, and uh, eventually we started, you know, working on music together and, uh, which was going to be on the dust brothers album, um, which never came out. Yeah. Um, what happened with that? That's so strange. I you, it's a funny story. That one, it's not that funny, but it's a short story as well. <laughs> They basically they were they were they signed a record deal to this label that was relatively new at the time called Giant Records. Hmm. And um it was um it was through a major, but it was like a imprint through a major. And basically they were gonna do this record and I, I was featured on one of the tracks on it. And I man, I was so happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was done and everything. They signed the record deal. And then the label didn't countersign the contract. And that was it. Damn. It was like, they offered him a record deal. They did all the contracts. They signed it. They didn't countersign it. So the deal was null and void. The record never got released. Did, uh, and... did a similar, <laughs> like, I know, because um, your first album proper was supposed to come out in 1996, right? Yeah, and right. Yeah, yeah. Because of a kind of similar issue, um, it never got released, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I did sign the contract. <laughs> I mean, what happened? So I, I moved to L.A. in 88. And, and you, then, met, you, you also met Jeff Buckley, too, I want to mention. Yeah, that. I met him within the first couple of years. Uh, maybe within the first year, I could, the Jeff Buckley thing, I remember doing a session for somebody on guitar, and they said, oh, man, you, rem you remind me of this guy, Jeff Buckley. Have you ever heard of him? And I was like, no. Um, and then I did another session for somebody else. Like, and they said the same thing to me. Said, oh man, uh, you remind me of this guy, Jeff Buckley, man. Have, have, uh, have you ever heard of him? I said, yeah, well, I, I've heard of him, yeah. I, I've actually heard of him yeah, yeah, now. Uh, and then I did another session for somebody else. And Jeff was like, came in right after me to play. So I met him like in this guy's bedroom studio. Uh, and then that started happening on a regular basis. There were a couple different people that I was doing sessions for that Jeff was also doing sessions for. And so that's how I got to know him. Um, I mean, I heard his first demo ever demo tape. Wow. I heard the first ever recordings of him singing, which nobody knew he could sing. You know, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he like sang on a friend's demo and, and we were like, whoa, man, he can sing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's crazy, man. So, um, and then what happened was, uh, you know, eventually I got a record deal over in London in uh, 93. So I've been in LA, you know, since 88, you know, making demos, playing in bands. I got a publishing deal with EMI and I, I toured with, um, a guy on Lollapalooza in 80, what was that? Uh, no, 92, that was. And um, That's big, yeah. That so, was... so I did, yeah, we wanted a Johnny Carson show too in 92. So a couple little things popping off. And I was, you know, I had, you know, I mean, LA's LA, you know, you know you're, you're there. You, you do meet famous people uh, or people that have done, you know, like things of note, you know, this constant weird, like you know, you you know, you know, it's either by design or just being in the, being in a certain place at a certain time. You meet people, and so you know, it was that whole LA experience of 
you know, meeting people, hanging out with people, finding myself in these kind of very L.A. situations. Um, but I ended up getting this deal in London. And um, and so I came over to London. Um, it took a while for the deal to, you know, get signed and everything. And then I came over to London in 94. And, um, and then in 95, I kind of moved over. And I made a record. I made two records for a label called Talking Loud, which was Giles Peterson's label. One was an artist record of mine, and the other one was uh, a record that I produced and co-wrote and played on. Uh, and neither record came out. Um, uh, it was promo. It was, it, there was a promo version in France that came out, and um, but that was it, right? I don't, that was it. Yeah, and they liked. They thought I was hot shit in France. You know, they you know they they thought they thought I was like you know an artiste. You know what I mean? Well, I think you are like a of note. <laughs> well, <thank you. laughs> the, the French were like the you know they were the first ones to kind of think, oh, this this guy is something special. You know, um, but you know that didn't come out, and so you know I found myself a bit soul destroyed for a while, and you know I just wrote a lot of songs, but I just got back to writing songs and. I started to play open mic nights and really tried to get together playing guitar and singing at the same time. Yeah. You know, because before I've been right, right at home and then going to the studio and craft these tracks, but they weren't like, you know what I mean? They were like studio craft and not like singer songwriter craft. So I kind of yeah. got that together. And um, that led to, just, uh, to Monkey Boy, right? It did. That's what. Exactly, and that was uh, 2000. That? That yes, it was 1999. Okay, I, I did a seven. I did a seven inch, um, uh, which came out in I think 99, early 99, probably. Okay, uh, and I put it out myself with the help of a couple of friends, and it was funny because I've been trying to get a record deal for. You know, since since the talk aloud thing, I, I, you know, for a few years I was trying to get another record deal, and nobody wanted to touch me. They were all, they were all like, "Well, why did you?" You know, I ended up getting out of my deal because they, they 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 kept not releasing my record, hmm. and um, and uh, and I, after a while I got fed up, and it was like after a couple of years of being signed to a label and having a finished record, and it never gets released. I was like, either release my record or release me from my contract. And so in the end, they released me from my contract. And so after that, that was a bit of a, it, it stopped other labels from signing me. There were a lot of other labels that talked to me that were interested. And I nearly signed with Sony uh, at, at one point to release the same record, but it didn't happen. So the talking loud thing, you know, definitely hurt for a while. But when I signed with Wallace Sounds, you know, it's after I did the seven on my own, I had like every label in town was after me, like within, within like 10 days of releasing it, like everybody was like, wanted to sign me, it was, which I found really ridiculous. It was another sort of music industry lesson. You know, it's like, if you're knocking on people's doors, like nobody wants to let you in. But the second you kind of like be like, well, I don't need you guys. I'll just do it myself. Then all of a sudden like, everybody's interested. Yeah. You know, everybody wants, to have a meeting everybody wants to telling you how great you are and so but that was I, you know, a, I was that, that was like a big moment for you though was releasing monkey boy and getting it out and it was it was it was the finally after many many years of you know 
working at it. I mean, I, I think when Monkey Boy came out, I was 36 or 37. And so I, I, I was really, in a way, it was my first properly released record. And I was like, I'm like, I'm almost 40, man. You know? That was <laughs> big, though, because from there. I've been working my ass off for yeah. so long, you know. And it took a long, sometimes it felt like it was never going to happen, you know. From there, though, uh, that was big because, like, it opened up a lot of doors for you uh, from, it, it from did. what I have read. Like, uh, you started doing a lot of uh, music for movies and TV, and uh, you started the Ping Pong Orchestra in, in 2004. Um, made your first... I think uh, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it's been, there was a lot of starts and stops, you know. It'd be like you'd get something going, and then it would, you know, it would do whatever it did, you know. And once it once it is sort of like, you know, finished the cycle of it, then then it's kind of like it's almost like filling the car up with gas and, you know, going down the road and then you run out of gas and you're stranded. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got then you got to like walk twenty miles to the nearest town to make a phone call. You know, <laughs> and so it's kind of like in whatever you know. So it was it, you know, and every time that happens, you know. Um, every time that happens it gets harder to come back you know yeah um but you know i've always been very determined so um you know i just kept doing stuff and i i always musically tried to do the things that i wanted to do the way i wanted to do them and i was never really following you know like trends per se i was kind of like following my own path and and wanting to kind of do what I do the way I, I did it and do it the best that I could. I felt like that's where, that's where the, you know, you know, that was the name of the game doing it like that. Yeah. I mean, obviously it makes things harder doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause you're not a part of any scene and you're sort of, you're always on the outside or you feel like you are and people don't know where to, they don't know what box to put you in. Uh, so like in the, you know, I think it's paid off, you know, and the long game of it's paid off. But I think you know, <laughs> there's been a lot of times where it was, you know, it's been frustrating and uh, you just don't seem like you can get anywhere or you can only get to a certain point and you can't break through, you know, past that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, I've just, s- just stayed at it with the same ethos, to be honest. And, and I think after a while you don't really care about some things, some things like you don't, you don't care about um, like uh, the things that other people think are important. You kind of like what's important is kind of like being creatively true to yourself and, and, and keep learning and doing what you're doing. And um, I mean, it's funny. I, my wife said this to me today and she's absolutely right. Um, she said something that, you know, I kind of do something and then I move on to something else, you know, and I'm already on to something else. And, and, and I'm not like trying to take that thing that I did and, and, um, maximize it. But I just, I'm just kind of like, you know, I, I don't know. I am just really always on to the next thing. And I just kind of feel like things do, do what they do, you know, whatever they do. I'm not, you know, I have high hopes for things every time I do them, but, you know, I'm not like, 
they actually doing something. The idea of conceptualizing and doing it and finishing it and releasing it, for me, that's the process. Is that's the success. Yeah. Like what happens after that is a bonus for me, and that's that's like, you know, I mean, I do enjoy the other things. I enjoy playing gigs and and I, I, the more people that hear my music, you know. That makes me happy, you know. I'm yeah. not trying to be be obscure, but I'm not also tr- not trying to. Uh, I'm never going for a like, mass audience. Uh, you know, if I did get a mass audience by accident, that's fine. <laughs> you do what you, <laughs> you do, what I mean? and, and if people dig it, that's what it is, right? Yeah, that's 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 exactly. It's what worked I'm out. Yeah. It seems that's that's good. Unfortunately, yeah. For this episode, I only got like a minute left. Um, <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna keep talking, but like I'm gonna wrap this episode up. Um, okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but uh, dude, uh, seriously, do what you like and like what you do, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, as much as I want to keep going, going, like that's unfortunately all we have time for today. That's my life story, anyway. Yeah, I seriously can't I'm thank you enough though for giving me this opportunity. Like, it, oh, man, seriously, welcome, man. it Thanks means the me. world to me. Um, I appreciate guys, that. Thank you, man. Thank you. Make sure, guys, listen to all of his music on streaming services such as Spotify, Apple Music. Consider purchasing his music on Bandcamp at seanlee.bandcamp.com. You can find more info about Sean Lee at his website, seanlee.net, his Twitter at I Love Sean Lee, his Facebook page at Sean Lee Music, or his YouTube channel titled Sean Lee. Don't forget to catch him live, be it solo or with AM when he comes to town. I know I certainly will once everyone is vaccinated. Uh, for yes. more info, yeah. For more Definitely. info, go to kpcradio.com. Again, that is kpcradio.com. I'm your host, Nicholas O'Neill, and as always, I will see you all on the next installment of the Music Forum.